Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 149, January 22nd to January 28th, 1864. Last week, we talked about some action in Tennessee, where we will return again this week and then actually have a full wrap on the Knoxville campaign. We mentioned goings-on with the Confederacy maybe starting to become a little desperate to turn the tide, and we also had a good rundown of events that will happen this year, 1864. This week, we're going to revisit Tennessee and hopefully wrap up the East Tennessee and Knoxville campaign, but first, we will head to Alabama. Of course, we do need to talk about Patreon content, and we're a little bit late in the release of the Patreon episode here for this month but we'll be releasing that as soon as possible with the movie review kind of a little bit different of a of a look taking a look at the beguiled and we have one version with Clint Eastwood and one version with Colin Farrell and kind of comparing and contrasting those two movies see where they're different talk about some themes maybe so if that sounds like something that would interest you there is a link to the Patreon in the show description Then once that is complete, we'll be turning right back around with another movie review here that will take up February, and this one is also pretty much one you can do at any time, although there is a general idea of the battle that is depicted in the movie, an actually famous book by Stephen Crane, Red Badge of Courage. We'll be talking about that starring Audie Murphy, so it's a little bit of an older movie. We'll take a look at that as well. So got some cinema-heavy patreon episodes here and if again that sounds like something that would interest you the link to the patreons in the show description and those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show they are greatly appreciated we have a skirmish that will occur at athens alabama on january 26th now i would say that alabama is probably the one state with the exception of florida that really have not spent a whole lot of time in The war has touched the northern section of the state, and Mobile in the south will be a major target of the U.S. Navy sooner rather than later. In fact, Mobile is going to be part of Grant's overall strategy. He wants to take a shot at Mobile, and that kind of gets sidetracked because of the Red River campaign. Athens, though, should sound familiar because we may have mentioned it in connection with Turchin's retaliation. John Basil Turchin, you remember, was a Russian officer serving in the Army of the Cumberland and had been court-martialed for the sack of Athens in 1862. This had resulted from skirmishing with rebel cavalry and also the frustration at having to deal with Confederate guerrillas even in a pro-Unionist area of the state. Remember, there had been some Alabama troops assisting Abel Strait on his raid back in 1863, and these would have been pro-Union men. Also remember that there had been a McCook supposedly executed at the hands of the guerrillas, but this event is actually debatable. Well, Turchin would roughly handle the business district of Athens with some looting and destruction of the town. Residences were also handled in the same heavy-handed tactic, and there is a report, unfortunately, of troops assaulting a young enslaved girl. 
This was all part of the idea that a harsher war needed to be enacted, but obviously it's still earlier in the conflict. Turchin would be removed from command and court-martialed, but Lincoln would return him to service, as we well know from his action at Chickamauga. Since Turchin's sack of the town, it had been occupied by Union troops. In 1864, a large group of Confederate cavalry under wealthy merchant from Montgomery, Moses Hannon, would attack a small garrison. Facing them were an outnumbered contingent of the 9th Illinois Mounted Infantry. The 9th was a veteran regiment, though, suffering heavy casualties at Shiloh. Even facing overwhelming odds, the Yankees were able to hold on, probably due to their experience. Casualties were 30 on the side of the northern troops and 50 on the side of the Confederates. The town would hold on and remain in federal hands. There will be a shift, as mentioned, of action moving more into the state, especially in the latter stages of the conflict, so we will be back soon. Let's talk about the first and second battles of Jonesville. These would be engagements happening in the early and late part of January 1864. Now, Jonesville is actually in Virginia, and if you look at a map, it is north of Knoxville, close to the Cumberland Gap. Being so close to Virginia and avenues into Kentucky would make this an interesting region. Obviously, this would be a strategically important area and subject to federal cavalry operations. A contingent of mounted forces and artillery under a Major Charles Beers would give heavy-handed treatment to the local populace. Grumble Jones had taken over command of this area for the Confederacy. If you remember, we have a kind of diaspora of Confederate cavalry officers during the winter as they're needed elsewhere, necessary for supply and forage. Jones would wish to spring a trap utilizing the 10th Kentucky and 64th Mounted Virginia under Lieutenant Colonel Auburn Pridemore. Despite frigid conditions, the trap would be sprung on January 3rd at Jonesville the small Confederate contingent holding up beers long enough for Jones to arrive, flanking and trapping the enemy. The Union forces, who had not been casualties, were forced to surrender. A kind of similar event to, say, Hartsville, a while back when we talked about John Hunt Morgan's daring action. On January 28th and 29th, there would be additional skirmishing involving Pridemort's command. This time... He would be pitted against Union forces checking any advance into Kentucky. These would be under the overall command of Theophilus Garrard, who has been in our story before. Now you may be wondering about protecting the route into Kentucky, but it was a real option on the table for the South. James Longstreet had decided to throw out an idea maybe of invading that estate again, trying to ease the pressure elsewhere. Now this probably would not have come onto anything, Old Pete probably would have to ask his buddy Bragg how his invasion of Kentucky went in 1862, and then he would have had some nice reference. However, he did not, and thought it would be a good idea in late 1863 and early 64. Pridemore's command would run into a portion of the 11th Tennessee Mounted, pushing them back and almost overwhelming them before reinforcements arrived on the 28th. This would still be around Jonesville, marking this the second battle of the same name. 
Pridemore would have his men form a line of battle on the 29th. He would see exchanging a fire with his Union counterparts. The Federal forces were inexperienced compared to the Confederates, who would charge and push their enemy all the way back to a defensive line. Instead of continuing the fight the next day, the Federals would withdraw, the rebel troops having successfully pushed the probing Yankees from the region. This is an interesting look into a lesser-known section of the war. Speaking of Tennessee, when we last left off in that state proper, Longstreet's forces had occupied Dandridge. The Union troops in the area had retreated before a knockout fight and possible trap by the Confederates. Now Samuel Sturgis, who had already been involved in much of the action in the area, would set up across the French Broad River. Longstreet was not only interested in crossing the river with his divisions, trying to put pressure on Knoxville yet again, but he also wanted William Martin to deal with the Federal Cavalry. Already there had been plans in this area to deal with the Federal Mounted Arm. On January 25th, the plan would go into motion with the cavalry advancing on the Fair Garden Road. This is where Sturgis resolved to strike the enemy. He would mount a saber charge against Martin, routing his forces, and it should be said Martin definitely gets handled in several of these engagements, even if he has the advantage in numbers. Sturgis, on the other hand, will be unable to follow up on his success. You will see the Confederates trying to cross the river, and that Martin would be reinforced. Rather than leaving with the success and mop-up of Martin's cavalry remnants, Sturgis would decide he should attack Frank Armstrong and his cavalry at their encampment. Armstrong, though, had been reinforced, and so the attack would fail with a bloody repulse. Both sides would see over 100 casualties, again showing how, while these are not decisive battles, they certainly were sharp fights. So we need to conclude the Knoxville Campaign and East Tennessee Campaign that was waged by James Longstreet. We are pretty removed from Knoxville, but to dial back a bit, we can make a conclusion that whatever the object was by Bragg and Longstreet, it was not accomplished. Longstreet's troops could have been more useful at Chattanooga, that is for sure. Now, if the object was to send Longstreet on a wild goose chase, then yes, that was accomplished. So I guess maybe Bragg can hang his hat there. The siege was a failure, capped by an ill-advised attack, which would do little other than lose numbers the Confederates can't afford. On the Union side, the stock of Ambrose Burnside would start to rise again. Despite getting some criticism, he does a good job of making sure to occupy Longstreet and not give up Knoxville. Capitulation of the city would have shifted things back to the direction of momentum to the Confederates, although if Chattanooga is still lifted, I am not sure exactly what impact it would be. East Tennessee was a good idea, but poor execution. Old Pete is going to be recalled soon and his men back to the Army of Northern Virginia, which many preferred, especially with the harsh Tennessee winter. There were some sharp fights, that is for sure, but really it is debatable as to whether Old Pete was going to have enough resources to capture Knoxville or even accomplish his goal of trying to divert some of the federal armies. There's just an overall criticism of Longstreet's Knoxville siege, how it's kind of a failure, how there's a lot of indecision, right? His 
divisions are not really equipped for a siege. We have Burnside, who does have numerical advantages. However, as we mentioned, most of his troops are not going to be veterans. He is getting a lot of recruits from Tennessee who want to fight for the Union Army, so he has a lot of that, but they're not combat veterans, not like James Longstreet has. There is also criticism of Burnside that when Sherman comes to relieve him, he's able to roll out a very nice feast, kind of downplaying perhaps the amount of supplies that are getting into the city because there had been talks of how there were supply shortages. And we know that Burnside is kind of very much for pomp and circumstance. And that's just kind of how he did things. He wanted to make sure that he was treated to a larger meal. And for somebody who's a little bit more rugged, shall we say, as Sherman, he's going to go back and tell Grant that, you know, this guy is feasting out here. So that obviously things weren't as dire as could have been. And while the siege was not necessarily an effective one, it is probably safe to say that Longstreet could have dealt a battlefield defeat to Burnside. Burnside has his flashes, right? We have talked before about certain scenarios where he does a good job in combat. However, he's not going to necessarily spark hope. And we're going to see in 1864, uh, even though he's kind of a problem with the federal armies, he's not going to really turn in very good performances either. Longstreet is also going to have some opportunity to perhaps defeat the successor to Burnside in East Tennessee, but overall, he's not really going to be doing too much in terms of his operations in that region either. So he's getting this independent command. This is kind of a shot to show that maybe he can lead an army, right? He kind of already blows his chance of maybe becoming the successor to Bragg when Jefferson Davis shows up because all the generals are dissatisfied uh, with the North Carolinian. And it's debatable as to the kind of relationship that the Confederate president has with Bragg. As we have mentioned before, they're not necessarily best friends. That sometimes they're depicted that way in certain sources, how you know this was his buddy, but not quite the case, as we know. And he is really interested in trying to make sure that there's no infighting amongst the officers, and James Longstreet is unable to stay out of that. So as we know, he was in the thick of it. And this is another reason why, you know, you have Robert E. Lee's army and he runs a bit of a tighter ship, shall we say. He's getting rid of the officers that he doesn't think are very competent. And unfortunately, the other theaters of the war, the sub-theater and the Trans-Mississippi, those are going to suffer because the guys that Lee doesn't like, that's where they're going to end up. I want to end this week by going over what Longstreet writes in his memoirs about the campaigning in Tennessee. It is always good to get a first-hand account of some of these events, so we have excerpts from his book. I like Longstreet's accounts as well because, as maybe you have heard with some of the memoirs we review, Old Pete is actually pretty detailed. I don't remember Moxley Sorrell spending more than a paragraph about East Tennessee, or at least it seemed that way. Also good to have a Union correspondence as an example.
About the 20th of December, a raid we made by General Averill from West Virginia upon a supply depot of General Sam Jones's department at Salem, which was partially successful, when General Grant, under the impression that the stores were for troops of East Tennessee, wired General Foster December 25th. This will give you great advantage, and General Foster dispatched General Park, commanding his troops in the field. December 26th, Longstreet will feel a little timid now and will bear a little pushing. Under the fierce operations of General Sturgis's cavalry against General Martin during the latter days of December, General W.E. Jones's cavalry was on guard from my right and rear towards Cumberland Gap. While Sturgis busied himself against our front and left, a raiding party rode from Cumberland Gap against the outpost of our far off right under Colonel Pridemore. As W.E. Jones was too far to support Martin's cavalry, he was called to closer threatenings against Cumberland Gap. Then he might thus draw some of Sturgis's cavalry from our front to strengthen the forces at the Gap. Upon receipt of orders, General Jones crossed Clinch River in time to find the warm trail of the raiders who were following Pridemore. He sent around to advise him of his ride in pursuit of his pursuers and ordered Pridemore, upon hearing his guns, to turn and join in the attack upon them. The very cold season and severe march through the mountain fastness stretched Jones's line so that he was in poor condition for immediate attack when he found the enemy's camp at daylight on the 3rd of January. But he found a surprise, not even a picket guard out in the rear. He dashed in with his leading forces and got the enemy's battery, but the enemy quickly rallied and made battle, which recovered the artillery and got into a strong position about some farmhouses and defended with desperate resolution. Finding the position too strong, Jones thought to engage as to make the enemy use his battery until his ammunition was exhausted, and then pull all of his forces in assault. Towards night, the enemy found himself reduced to desperate straits and tried to secure cover of the mountains. But as quick as he got away from the farmhouses, Jones put all of his forces in, capturing three pieces of artillery. 380 prisoners and 27 wagons and teams of the 16th Illinois Cavalry and 22nd Ohio Light Artillery. A number of the men got away through the mountains. So we actually have a account that would have been from Longstreet's memoirs, and he's covering the action that we talked today uh, around Jonesville. So he has a lot more detail, I think, than other memoirs usually do. Right? Like I said, Sorrell doesn't really talk a whole lot about East Tennessee. There are others that are kind of similar and that they kind of gloss over things. So nice to see he's giving it some pretty good detail. So here we also have uh, correspondence talking about East Tennessee from Henry Halleck. General, I have got General Thomas ready to move a force of about 14,000 infantry into East Tennessee to aid the force there in expelling Longstreet from the state. He would have started on Monday night if I had not revoked the order. Right, my reasons for doing this are these. Gerald Foster, who is now here, says that our possession of the portion of East Tennessee is perfectly secure against all danger. The condition of the people within the rebel lines cannot be improved now after losing all they had. Longstreet, where he is, makes more secure other parts of our possessions. Our men from scanty clothing and short rations are not in good condition for an advance. There are but a very few animals in East Tennessee in condition to move artillery or other stores. 
If we move against Longstreet with an overwhelming force, he will simply fall back towards Virginia until he can be reinforced or take up an impregnable position. The country being exhausted, all our supplies will have to be carried from Knoxville the whole distance advanced. We will be obliged to advance rapidly and return soon, whether the object of the expedition was accomplished or not. Longstreet could return with impunity on the heels of our returning column, at least as far down the valley as he can supply himself from the road in his rear. Schofield telegraphs the same effect. All these seem to be good reasons for abandoning the movement, and I have therefore suspended it. Now that our men are ready for an advance, however, I have directed it to be made on Dalton and hope to get possession of that place and hold it as a step toward a spring campaign. Our troops in East Tennessee are now clothed, rations are also accumulating. When Foster left, most of the troops had 10 days' supplies with 500 barrels of flour and 40 days' meat in store, and the quantity increasing daily. So there we have Henry Halleck explaining why he's not sending more troops to deal with Longstreet. And you know, we talked, that's kind of what Longstreet sort of wants. He wants to have Federals shifting forces to try to deal with him and very well could have performed exactly as Halleck is saying and, and withdrawn. And there is a supply situation that's occurring in this region already. The Union troops need to be resupplied. So it would be difficult for them to have a drawn out campaign that's going to pull them away from their bases of supply. And just as Halleck says, you know, Longstreet could then turn and act offensively once the extent of their advance is reached. So we often think about Halleck being a little bit of aloof, perhaps, as a general, um, but he does give some pretty good reasons as to why George Thomas is not showing up to help deal with Longstreet. And even on paper, too, you also have to realize that there's not really a large number of troops that Longstreet is bringing to the field. You know, he only has some of his divisions with him. So it's not like Thomas is going to be needed to bring about a numerical advantage either. Forced to the extremities, the Richmond authorities began to realize the importance of finding a way of our pent up borders before the Union commander could complete his extensive arrangements to press on with his columns. They called upon General Lee General Johnson and myself for plans or suggestions that could anticipate the movements of the enemy, disconcert his plans, and move him to new combinations. In front of General Lee and on his right and left of the country had been so often forged by both Union and Confederate armies that it was denuded of supplies. Besides, a forced advance of Lee's army could only put the enemy back a few miles to his works about Washington. General Johnson's opportunities were no better and in addition to other difficulties, he was working under the avowed displeasure of the authorities, more trying than his trouble with the enemy. So this is back to Longstreet writing. It's interesting. He is a sort of a disciple, shall we say, of Johnston. So he's talking about how Johnston's getting no help. Uh, so it's not necessarily surprising. I was under the impression that we could collect an army of 20,000 men in South Carolina by stripping our forts and possessions of all men not essential for defense that that army could be quietly moved north by rail through Greenville to the borders of North Carolina and promptly marched by Abington, Virginia, through the mountain passes. While my command covered the move by its portion in East Tennessee, that army passing the mountains, my command could drop off to the left to its rear and fall into Kentucky, the whole to march against the enemy's only line of railway from Louisville 
and force him to lose his hold against General Johnson's front and give the latter opportunity to advance his army and call all of his troops in Alabama and Mississippi to like advance. The grand junction of all the columns to be made on or near the Ohio River. General Beauregard to command the leading column with orders not to make or accept battle until the grand junction was made. That General Johnson should have like orders against battle until he became satisfied of fruitful issues. The supplies and transportation for Beauregard to be collected at the head of the railroad in advance of the movement of troops under the ostensible purpose of hauling for my command. The arrangements perfected the commander of the leading column to put his troops on rail or at near Charleston and march with them as they arrived at the head of the road. So there you go. We have a pretty good explanation of, and a pretty good plan too, of the attack that Longstreet wants to make into Kentucky. It is a little bit interesting. He's suggesting they strip all the available troops out of, you know, say the Carolinas, right? And obviously there's kind of a stalemate around Charleston. The Union Army and Navy are not making any headway there. And then we do have some of these brigades that are operating in North Carolina, as we have briefly discussed, that could be used for Lee's army. Or in this scenario, it is fairly interesting to think Longstreet, Beauregard, and Johnson all kind of acting together in that region. And you could have an argument that, you know, any kind of troops you want that to be in the hands of Lee, who's the most capable general, but then you can also kind of see where Longstreet is coming from, where if anyone is going to be able to hold their own with a lesser amount of troops, it's probably going to be Lee against Meade. He's already proven that with Meade trying to act offensively, he could still kind of get the better of him, right? And if he's acting purely defensive and and being kind of this boogeyman figure, so to speak, then there you go. He can fend for himself in Virginia, and then that's going to force Grant especially to focus his attention into the central part of the country and Kentucky and, and figure out a defense there. So it is a pretty interesting idea. Obviously, I think we're past the point in the war where this is going to be something that Jefferson Davis is comfortable with, though. So we can close out today. We had action at Athens and Alabama, further Tennessee operations, and a kind of wrap on the East Tennessee campaign, as well as Knoxville, which is a little overdue. Overall, Longstreet does not sparkle, and spending a harsh winter in Tennessee will only make his men miss Bobby Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. We also had excerpts from Longstreet and his memoirs, which is a good first-hand retelling of the events we have been going over, especially today. Next week, we need to head back to Mississippi for the overlooked Meridian Campaign, bounce back to New Bern in North Carolina, and talk about the USS Underwriter. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.